The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. Let's remember the controlling question, and that's the controlling issue at stake. In chapter 5, verse 2, Pharaoh said this, Who is the Lord? He, it's capital L-O-R-D in your Bible because it's the Lord's personal name. Who is Yahweh? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? And throughout the book of Exodus, God has been answering that question, who the Lord truly is and why his voice should be obeyed. But let's not think that this is an old book for an ancient people. Let's not forget that that is the controlling question for our life as well. In terms of our eternity, the key question is, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? But not only is that the key question for where our life direction and eternity ends, isn't it the key question moment by moment? Indeed, frankly, right now, the Bible is opened. We're about to give the word of the Lord. And according to James, we could leave today as hearers only or as hearers and doers. Meaning even this very hour, all of us are going to answer the question, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? This is the moment by moment question and it's the eternal question. So it's a question for you and I. Now God tells us that he's going to answer this question in part through his plagues and he's going to answer it for everybody. And so in chapter 6, we read in verse 6 and 7, God said, I will redeem you with great acts of judgment so that you will know I am the Lord who brought you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. So he wants the Israelites to know I'm sending plagues so you will know I am the Lord. But then in chapter 7, verses 4 and 5, he says, I will lay my hand on the land of Egypt with great acts of judgments, the plagues, so that the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Notice Yahweh, the Lord, is doing what he's doing so that everyone will be without excuse knowing who he truly is. He is the Lord. The fact that the Israelites and the Egyptians need this revelation reminds us that we all need to rightly answer the question, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? And I would like to make this case by way of summary today. I believe in Exodus at this point, we're now at chapter 11 and 12. I think the answer to that question is this. The Lord is infinitely great and the Lord is infinitely good. Those are the two today. So if you're a note taker, if you're a big picture person, that's where we're going. I believe in Exodus, God is revealing that the Lord is infinitely great and that the Lord is infinitely good. The Lord is great and the Lord is good. And that is best known through the Lamb of God. And so today in your Bible, we're in Exodus 11. If you have a pew Bible, it's page 62 and 63. And the title of the sermon is The Lamb of God, because that's how we learn that the Lord is infinitely great and infinitely good. And if you have a bulletin from this morning, we have three large points that will unpack that. So Roman numeral one is judgment. And that shows us that the Lord is infinitely great. If you were here last Sunday, you know that the plagues were building in climax. There were three sets of three that followed the exact same cycle, but it was a spiral of worsening hardening on Pharaoh's part. And that's why the 10th is the climactic one. Our brother read for us chapter 11, so we should be pretty familiar, but you'll notice in verse one, the Lord said, 
And notice that's what's been happening throughout this entire book. The Lord is saying things and therefore doing things. The Lord is keeping his promises. You might wonder, why is this a kept promise? But do you remember before Moses even went back to Egypt, at the end of chapter 4, God told Moses this, I will send you to Pharaoh, tell him to let my people go, but if he refuses, and he will refuse, I will strike down his firstborn. So now the Lord is doing what he said he's going to do. But in it, he's going further. He's not only fulfilling his promises, he's reversing the fortune of his people. It's hard almost not to smile in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 11 when the Egyptians are going to give their silver and gold to the Israelites. Further still in verse 3, the Egyptians are going to love Moses. Moses will be very great. In the land of Egypt, the man who was opposed will now be the man who is revered. Why? Because remember what God said in chapter 7, now Moses represents Yahweh, and Yahweh's name will be revered, and it will be revered in Egypt. I want to remind you, though, today, if you are part of the people of God, that the Lord has a pattern of providing for his people. In fact, the Lord has a pattern of providing for his people above or beyond what we could ask or think. Not only does he deliver, he gives silver and gold too. And the Lord still has a way of not only taking care of our eternal soul, but providing in many day-to-day blessings. In fact, if you were to pause today, this afternoon, and got out a blank sheet of paper and just filled out things the Lord has done for you, wouldn't it be a long list? If you remembered all the ways the Lord has provided for you, would it not be more than you could have originally asked? Now, you might struggle. You might struggle with the ethics here and say, wait, how is it okay for the Lord to plunder the Egyptians? Let me give you some answers. First, I would remind you that that is God's retributive and remunerative justice. Here's what that means. When God retributes justice, he repays evil for evil. Pharaoh representing the Egyptians, and the Egyptians themselves have cruelly treated the Israelites in harsh slavery. Therefore, they are being punished rightly. But further, it's remunerative justice. God also repays those who are wrongly treated, and the Israelites are now going to be blessed for their 430 years of harsh slavery. There's another reason, though. Did you notice our translation uses the word plunder? Where do we use the word plunder? in our vocabulary. When there's been a victor, and this has been a showdown, this has been a showdown between Yahweh and Pharaoh who claims that he is almighty. And at the end, somebody gets plunder, and it's going to be Yahweh and his people. There's a third reason, though, and this one is perhaps the most striking. In the end, the Egyptians want to give away their silver and their gold. In fact, at the end, they're begging the Israelites to take their silver and their gold. Now, God predicted that over 500 years earlier. In Genesis 15, God told Abraham that he would send his descendants to a land where they would serve as slaves. But then he said this in Genesis 15, verse 14, over 500 years earlier, God told Abraham, I will bring out your people with great possessions. This is very important for this reason. The Egyptians want to give away their silver and gold, But the reason they want to do that is because the Lord has given favor in their hearts. Let me say it this way. They are doing what they want to do, and what they want to do is what God has ordained them to do. 
God is God, and he's going to accomplish what he wants. Let me press the point further. Psychologically speaking, we could understand why the Egyptians may be giving away silver and gold. They're sick of the plagues. They want these people gone. But think for a minute. Couldn't it just have easily turned out this way, where the Egyptians rise up and murder Moses and start having war with the Israelites? Is that not equally plausible? And yet it could not have happened that way. Do you know why? Because Yahweh is Lord. (laughs) Because God is God. And when God says something's going to happen, there is no other alternative option. And yet the Egyptians wanted it to happen that way. I want to encourage you this morning to know something. God always accomplishes his will. Many first-year seminary students get far too confused about divine sovereignty and human responsibility, and they follow, fall down a rabbit hole that they can't seem to get out of. Just set all that aside, and don't forget this big point. God is God. God does what God says. God's will is always accomplished. In the burning bush, God told Moses that when he went to Egypt, The Egyptians would give gold and silver to anyone who asked. And now that's being fulfilled. And it's being fulfilled because the real reason something happens is because the hand of God moves. Here's why this is so encouraging for you and I. Never forget that when it seems like things could not possibly change for the good, that nothing is impossible for God. Never forget when things seem like they'll inevitably repeat themselves that God can break any cycle. Never forget that when everyone's pulling one direction, God can turn them the other direction. This is what our sociologists can never seem to understand. D.A. Carson wrote about this when he wrote, The element overlooked by sociologists and those who lead our culture is they think culture is a closed system. They therefore don't understand that God can intervene and turn hearts and turn minds. Massive revival that can transform the value systems of the West is virtually inconceivable to those who think we live in a closed system. But God can favorably dispose anyone at any time. Let me remind you this morning, God is God. And that is why the Egyptians freely and gladly gave their silver and gold to God's people. So remind yourself this morning, God blesses you and provides for you, and he can do so at any time. Remember, who paid for Moses' mother to raise him? Pharaoh. And who now pays for God's people to leave him? Pharaoh and the Egyptians. God provides. But stick with me for a second. As we rejoice in God's provision, remember what the Israelites did with God's provision when they got to the other side of the Red Sea. They took that silver and that gold, and what did they make with it? A golden calf where they worshiped a false god. Now, brothers and sisters, is it not easy for us to take the blessings that God has given us and run away from him with those blessings? To start to think, God has given me so much. And then to start to think, I deserve this. I've earned this. And I'll do what I want with it. See, the blessings of God are incalculable. And yet we can so easily move them in the wrong direction. This early text reminds us God is great and he abundantly provides. But his provisions should bring us closer to him as the giver. 
They should remind us that the answer first to the question, who is the Lord? The Lord is great, and as the psalm continues, and greatly to be praised. So now the cycle happens a final time. Look in Exodus 11, look down in verse 4. Now we'll pick up rereading what's been read already. I want you to notice the cycle. If you're the kind of person who takes notes in your Bible, notice that the cycle is the same as it's been for all the other plagues. So verse 4 the Lord speaks, it happens, and then Pharaoh rejects. So verse 4, so Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, so from the mightiest, from the highest, even to the firstborn of the slave girl, from those thought of as the lowest, even the firstborn of the cattle. Verse 6, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. This is a judgment. Verse 7, notice God's sovereign protection, but not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel. Verse 8, all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me. Remember the big question from Pharaoh was, who is the Lord that I shall obey him? And in the end, Pharaoh's servants will bow down to the Lord, not, not to Pharaoh, because the Lord alone is great and greatly to be praised. Verses 9 and 10 show us that Pharaoh will again reject and he is again hardened in judgment. But now notice verse 8. Moses goes out from Pharaoh hot in anger. That phrase was one that I highlighted the first time I studied through it. How do I make sense of this? Is, is it right for Moses to be hot with anger? What, what's happening in the text here? But remember, back in chapter 7, verse 1, God said that Moses would represent him to Pharaoh. Does God ever have righteous anger? He does. Is it right for God to be angry at sin? It is. Is it right for God to have anger against those who oppose him and shake their fist in his face? It is. Even in the life of Christ, we see righteous anger. We see when he's angry at the temple, when they're abusing worship. We see when he's angry at the tomb of Lazarus. Even Jesus is angry at death and, and taxes, we might say those two things. The anger of the Lord is righteous, but then how do we understand the mercy of the Lord? And here we need to remember that two things that we tend to think of as incompatible are two things that the Bible holds in perfect tension. That the Lord has righteous judgment and yet the Lord has merciful grace, mercy and judgment. This week I was reading Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton and he said it better than maybe anybody I've ever heard say it. Here's what he wrote. He said, we're constantly assured that when the lion lies down with the lamb, the lion becomes lamb-like. But that is a brutal annexation and imperialism on the part of the lamb. That is simply the lamb absorbing the lion instead of the lion eating the lamb. The real problem is this, Chesterton writes. Can the lion lie down with the lamb and still retain his ferocity? Those underrate Christianity who say that it discovered mercy. Anyone might discover mercy. In fact, everyone did. But to discover a plan for being merciful and also severe in judgment anticipates a divine quality that knows human nature. Chesterton is right. The lion is the lion and the lamb 
If you don't have both, you don't have justice, and you don't actually have mercy. In Exodus 34, 6 through 7, God himself says this. He passes by, the, by Moses and says, I am the Lord, forgiven iniquity, transgression, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. How can it be both? How can he say, I'm the God who forgives iniquity and sin, but I will not clear the guilty. How can it be both? And we'll see the answer in today's text. Today's text shows that God can remain lion and lamb by adding the lamb to his own divinity. So number one is judgment, chapter 11. God is great. But now number two on your handout is mercy. God is good. Now Exodus 12 and 13 break the pattern we've had before. All the other chapters are just historical narrative. But these chapters include instruction, and the instruction comes out of chronological order. God gives instruction on how the Passover should be kept before they're ever brought out. What does that tell us? It tells us that they were for sure going to be brought out. God can tell them how to keep the Passover before they're ever delivered because the word of the Lord is that certain. But now if you look in Exodus 12, in verses 1 through 11, I'll point out some things by way of summary. We won't read all of them, but in them, we get why the Passover has specific details and what those teach us about God. So look in Exodus 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Did you catch that? The Passover is so important that it now resets the calendar year. Every year will begin with the Passover because it is the primary understanding of how God relates to his people. Now, the details that follow, I'll summarize for you. But in verses 3 and 4, we read that every house has to have a full lamb. And if your neighbor doesn't have a lamb, you need to come eat with your neighbor who does have a lamb. And they need to eat all of the lamb, and everyone needs to eat it. Did you catch that? Everyone needs the lamb, and they need all of the lamb. They need the whole thing. None of it is extraneous. This is such a good reminder for me because I constantly become more aware of how desperately I still need Jesus. Not part, but all. Verse 5, this male lamb is a special lamb. It's a lamb without defect. It has to be the best of what the people have so that it can be given to the best of all gods. The lamb is not slaughtered until the 14th day. We read that in verse 6. And the lamb is slaughtered at twilight. This is a lamb that dies the death deserved by everybody in that household. For that reason, blood needs to be put on the top of the doorframe and on the sides. We see that in verse 7. Look with me now in verse 7 of Exodus 12. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. In fact, later we'll read in verse 22 that the blood was not only on the top and on the sides, but that it went down to the basin or maybe the threshold, we might say. Why do you think the blood is on the top and the sides and the bottom? No one can come in or out of that house without being literally encompassed by the blood that covers them. 
It is interesting, isn't it? That at the cross, maybe you've sung this, see from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and blood flow mingled down. The top, the sides, the bottom, a full covering for all who are washed in the blood. Verses 8 through 10, the meal must be eaten in a specific way. They're to eat bitter herbs. Later, God says they're to eat bitter herbs so that they remember this meal is to remind them of the bitterness they've endured. Verse 10, anything extraneous must be burned because none of it can be left over. Verse 11, we read this, in this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. Why do they need to eat it in haste? Because now is the time of salvation. The hour is unknown. It could be today. The point is you must be washed because you will be taken. So this is how it's prepared. But now we know why it's called Passover. Look with me in verse 12 of Exodus 12, and we'll slow down here a little bit. God says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. On all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. And they're personified in Pharaoh. I am the Lord, Yahweh says again. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And this is now the meaning of Passover. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike strike the land of Egypt. So brothers and sisters, here is now the second big thing we learn about God. We learn first that God is great. He works mighties and wonders. But now we learn also that God is good. He provides a way to escape the judgment that all deserve. God is infinitely great, but praise the Lord, God is also infinitely good. The preparations of the Passover are repeated in verses 14 through 20. Here we get a few more details. If you look in verse 17, you'll get the summary though. Verse 17, you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For this very day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. If you've ever wondered why the bread is unleavened, we do read later in Scripture how there's a sense of purity, but that's not the point here. The reason the bread is unleavened is because they don't have time for yeast. They don't have time for the process it takes to make bread with leaven. They need to be ready to go right away. Well, now the night of the Passover comes. So look down in verse 21, please, of Exodus 12. Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourself according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, which is a, um, a it would almost be like a stick with branches and it would be good for spreading things. Dip it in the blood that is in the basin. Touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the doorpost, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads 
and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. Now on your handout, I have an A, B, and a C. And I want you to look at them if you have the bulletin this morning. So we said the Lord is great and the Lord is good, but how do I get in on that? And how does that become applied to me? The fact that the Lord is infinitely great and infinitely good only matters if I know how that applies to me. And in this passage, we get three ways we get in on it. And I do think there's principles for us still today. Here are the three ways. If you don't have the notes, they'll all begin with B. Belief, bread, and blood. Belief, bread, and blood. And let me explain them each. The first way we receive the greatness and goodness of the Lord for our salvation is through belief. Salvation is gifted to those who trust those who receive. The Passover evidence is that faith is always demonstrable. It's always manifest through taking God at his word. In their case, the way they took God at his word is putting blood on the doorpost. We take God at his word still by believing his promises about Jesus, Acts 16.31. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. We get in on the promises of God through belief. But further, we get in on the promises of God through bread. You might be thinking, what do you mean by bread? But the Feast of Unleavened Bread is a feast of remembrance. Similarly, the Feast of Communion is a feast of remembrance. Belief shows that we receive, but bread shows that we remember. The historian Claire Davis describes the Christian life as a combination of amnesia and deja vu. (laughs) She says the Christian life could be summarized in this sentence. I know I've forgotten this before. It's a good summary of what it's like for us to live as believers. Let me quote her further. She writes, we come to God confessing we cannot save ourselves. Only Jesus can save us, we say. However, as we follow God, we sometimes try to do so in our own strength. We suffer from spiritual amnesia, forgetting that it is only by God's grace that anything good could come. And when we forget, we fail. Then in his mercy, God reminds us that only he can do all things by his strength and grace. And then we remember, oh, this has happened before. Yes, I remember now, we say, only Jesus can save me. If you've ever done a study through the Bible on just the word remember, it comes up a lot. Remember the Lord who's great and awesome, Nehemiah 4.14. Remember your creator, Ecclesiastes 12.12. Remember I am God, there is no other, Isaiah 46 verse 9. Remember Jesus, raised from the dead, 2 Timothy 2.8. Remember you were slaves in the land of Egypt, Deuteronomy 5.15. Remember how the Lord did wonders, Psalm 78, Psalm 106. Remember what he has done, 1 Chronicles 16 verse 12. Brother, sister, what do you need to remember about God today? What do you need to remember that he is and that he does? So the first is belief we receive. The second is bread we remember. The third is blood. We accept that we need a savior in our place. The blood is the blood of a substitute, the blood of a lamb. Why blood though? That might sound strange or macabre to you. Why blood? Steven Spielberg blessed all of us when he made the cartoon movie, The Prince of Egypt. I say he blessed us because he found a way to work Steve Martin and Martin Short into the magicians of Egypt, and I'm forever grateful for that. 
But The Prince of Egypt, of course, wasn't the most biblically accurate movie. In fact, in his original script, Steven Spielberg wrote this, When I see the mark upon the doorframe, I will pass over you. Thankfully, his script was edited, and eventually he was persuaded to write, When I see the blood. But Spielberg didn't think the blood mattered. He thought it was of no significance. Do you know why blood? Why blood? What is so important about blood? The answer is replete through the Bible. Blood means life. Blood means life. When I see the blood means when I see the life in the place of your lives. Your lives are all condemned. But if I see the life of someone as your substitute, then I'll pass over you. Remember, they kept the lamb in their house for four days. That lamb would have been their children's play animal. That lamb would have been their friend. They would have identified with the lamb. But when they woke up the morning after Passover, every firstborn would have realized the only reason I'm alive and this household has been spared is because the lamb has died. A life for lives. The blood is a description of life. It reminds us of something very important. Jesus did not die as an example or as a demonstration. Jesus died as a substitute, as a life for guilty lives. Charles Spurgeon wrote this, Though it's unpopular to talk about Jesus' blood, we firmly believe the doctrine of the atoning death of our great substitute. We stand to the literal substitution of Jesus Christ in the place of his people, to the real endurance of suffering in our stead. Even the term the blood, which some shrink away from in a great affectation of delicacy, we shall not cease to use, whoever may take offense at it. Because the blood brings out the fundamental truth, which is the power of God into salvation. We dwell beneath the blood mark and rejoice that Jesus was poured out his soul, his blood for our death. Brothers and sisters, we too must firmly hold to the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. Do you know how important the blood is? Let me read some scriptures. We've now been justified, Romans 5, 9, by his blood. In him we have redemption through his blood, Ephesians 1, verse 7. Jesus also suffered to make the people holy through his own Blood, Hebrews 13, verse 12. You were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. And 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. Hebrews 9, 22 puts it all together. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the substitute But let us be sobered by those not under the blood. Pick up with me in Exodus 12, verse 29. This is how it ends if you're not under the blood. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in night He and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. This is where pride takes us. Life without 
being under the blood results in weeping and gnashing of teeth. And notice in the middle of night in darkness. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. The reason people die is because of our rejection of God. Going back to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were created not to ever face or experience death. But in our judgment, God explains to Adam that he will return to the dust. He will die because death means to separate, to separate from God. And death means to isolate, to leave others. Do you remember what the last words of Pharaoh were after the ninth plague? He said to Moses in chapter 10, verse 27, get away from me. I will never see your face again. This is what he said to Moses who represents God. So it is for anyone who rejects God still. Death means to say, get away from me, God. I will never see your face again. Death always means to separate and it means to isolate. And in hell, that's eternally what happens. We separate from God and his graces. We isolate from others, especially those who represent God to us. This happens only because of our stubborn pride and there is no other reason. Hebrews 9.27 says, Is it appointed for a man once to die and after this judgment? But we reject God's salvation only because of our pride. Do you remember Timothy McVeigh? In 1995, he famously bombed people in Oklahoma City. He was brought to execution on June 11th in 2001. And here's the very last thing he said before he died. He quoted from the poem Invictus and said these words. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. So said Pharaoh, essentially. And so essentially says everyone who rejects the blood of the Lamb. See, God alone is great. And God alone is good. But sin and stubborn pride rejects God's greatness and refuses His goodness. But the wages of sin... Reminds us that we're all sinners. Do you know what's so striking to me about the 10th plague? It's the only one that distinctively lets the Israelites know that they deserve it too. All the other ones before that, it's like Israel just escapes it. Egypt endures it. Israel escapes it. How shocked must the Israelites have been on the 10th plague when they heard their own lives were in jeopardy? We could die too? Yeah. Do you know why? Because you're sinners too. In fact, in Exodus, their sin has been made clear. How did they respond to God's prophet Moses? You're our judge. <laughs> you're our deliverer. In fact, when we get to Joshua 24, 14, we'll find out that they were idolaters. They adopted the Egyptian gods. We also saw in chapter 5 that when the Egyptians were beating the Israelites, what did Moses find the next morning? The Hebrews are beating up one another. See, Romans 3 verse 9 says it this way, Jews and Gentiles are all alike under sin. So let me say it to you this morning. I am a sinner. You are a sinner. All of us need a substitute as our Savior. And he must be sinless. He must not be like us. So now let me explain to you why the firstborn. You ever wonder that? Why the firstborn? Why is it just the firstborn that dies? What does any of that mean? I'll give you five answers that I think are from the text. Five reasons why it's the firstborn. Number one, because the firstborn in ancient cultures was a representative for the whole family. 
We've totally lost that, so it's very confusing for us. But the firstborn in ancient cultures was a representative for the whole family. The firstborn represented all the offspring, all the future. The closest thing we might have today is before a football game when the captains meet at the center of field and they represent the rest of the team. Or maybe an executive who travels overseas to represent the company. But the firstborn represented the fate of the whole family. But now number two, why the firstborn? Well, remember, because Moses murdered the firstborn baby boys. So this is retributive justice. Number three, why the firstborn? Why does the firstborn have to die? Number three, because sin is so much weightier than we tend to think. Sin merits death. Sin earns death. Number four, why, why the firstborn? Why would God take the firstborn? Well, he told us at the beginning of chapter 11. In verse 1, God said, the reason I'll send one more plague is because now Pharaoh will let you go. So why the death of the firstborn? Because that was the only thing that would give Pharaoh the impetus to obey at least a little, though not fully. But fifth, why the firstborn? Because Jesus acts as our firstborn. In Romans, we read this, that Christ is the firstborn of all of his brothers. In Revelation 1, verse 5, we read that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. In Colossians 1, we read that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. Does that mean that God created Jesus? No, of course not. Jesus is the creator. It means that he stands as the representative, and he's the representative for whom? Those are his family in faith. Hebrews 12, verse 23 says, we are the church of the firstborn. Christ now becomes the representative for those who will be in God's family. And hear this this morning. The fate of the family rests on the firstborn. I read a true story recently of a woman in, in Sweden, actually, who married a man from Scotland. And unfortunately, the man was, uh, was very bad to her. And he abandoned her and her three children. And they were living in a broken down trailer. And they had really no hope of a future. And then years went by and they received a letter in the mail that revealed to them that they were direct descendants of the house of Stuart. They were heirs to the throne of Scotland. Here's what the letter said, which was addressed to her oldest son. Your Royal Highness, discovering you and your family has been the happiest moment in my life. Please know that you have been found to restore Scotland to her former greatness. I will work with every ounce of my being to restore you from your sad exile to the lands, the goods, and the reverence which you, by the will of God, are entitled. The firstborn carries the fate of the family. What belongs to him belongs to them. So we need, but we have been given, the perfect firstborn. I want you to notice in this passage how Jesus fulfills all of the roles. Isn't it interesting? The Bible later calls him the firstborn, but the Bible also later calls him the, the lamb. In the houses in Exodus, it's one or the other. The firstborn survives or the lamb survives, but Jesus fulfills both. He's the firstborn who carries the fate of the family, but he's the lamb who suffers the family's death. In fact, in the Bible, the death of a lamb prepares as a shadow for the substance of Jesus from the very beginning. Remember in the offerings of Cain and Abel? Remember Abraham and Isaac? 
God provides a lamb. Do you remember in Exodus, of course, the lamb represents a household. Later in the Old Testament, on the Day of Atonement, the lamb represents the whole nation. And what does John the Baptist say when he sees Jesus? Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why is it broader? Because it's the infinitely perfect lamb. See, Jesus is the firstborn who carries the fate of the family. Jesus is the lamb who suffers in our place, but Jesus is the lamb further who we feast on. What does Jesus say on the night of Passover? This is now my body. This is broken for you. This is my blood which is shed for you. Take ye, eat ye, how much of it? All of it. Just like how on the Passover night they needed the whole lamb, so we today need the whole lamb of God. We need our Lord Christ. Exodus 12, verse 46, if you look down to it, the end of the text there, Exodus 12, verse 46. This lamb shall be eaten in one house, and you shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. When Jesus was hung on the cross and they were removing his body, we read this in John 19, 36. These things took place that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. See, the lamb was always a shadow for the substance that we needed. The salvation that only Christ provides. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, cleanse out the old leaven. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Revelation 12, 11, the church will triumph over the dragon based on the blood of the lamb. So number one, God is great. He shows us that in judgment. Number two, praise God, God is good. We receive that through belief through bread, and through blood. But because of the blood, we also will be delivered. So look now in Exodus 12, verses 31. And this is now the record of the actual exit part, the Exodus part. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. Go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks, your herds as you have said. Be gone. This is Pharaoh now saying, Leave, take everything. But at the end, he says, bless me also. How should we understand that? Fiddler on the Roof has an interesting section that's very close to this. In Fiddler on the Roof, the rabbi is asked to bless the czar. And here's the blessing the rabbi gives. May the Lord bless the czar and keep him far away from us. (laughs) It's essentially what the blessing is here. We know Pharaoh is not sincere in asking for a blessing because what will he do the next chapter? He'll immediately say, why did I let them go? And he'll chase them into the Red Sea. Let me remind you this morning that God will not bless a man who will not repent of his sin. God will not bless us if we do not receive his son. There is no blessing for those who won't take the blood. Those who don't believe. Those who don't have the bread. I wonder if you realize how urgent salvation is. There's going to be a day where God says, come, and everybody goes. It is so urgent that our loved ones decide to put their faith in the blood of the Lamb. There's nothing more urgent, there's nothing more necessary, and there's nothing more wonderful than that you call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Because the day comes where God calls his people home, and there is no time to ask for a blessing then. We receive the blood that's already been shed. The Egyptians are urgent in verse 33. They say, leave or we shall all be dead. Indeed, that is the case. 
Verse 34, so the people took their dough before it was leavened. That's why it's unleavened bread. Their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold, jewelry, clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men, besides women and children. Yesterday I was at the state fair in, in Raleigh, which was, you know, it's a blessing to be able to go. We parked in that spot where we had the buses, you know, the buses that can take you over to the fair. And as we were parked, it was a very busy day yesterday. And I looked out and I, I quit counting at some point. We were all trying to get on the bus. And as I looked behind me, there must have been about a thousand people lined up to get on these buses. And we waited forever. And when we got to the fair, all these people were crowding up against us. There were these spots where we couldn't move. There were bodies on tops of bodies. And sometimes you'll hear at the end of the day how many people were at the fair, 100,000, 200,000. Picture Moses leading 10 times that many people. So have that in your mind's eye when you picture the Exodus. And here's why I want you to have that in your mind's eye. Nothing is too hard for God. God can get 2 million people out of Egypt easily, even with a Pharaoh who has done everything to keep them from getting. And you know when they get in the Red Sea, God will still get them through. And he'll get you through too. Now I want you to see how good God is in verse 38. A mixed multitude also went up with them. God didn't just save the Israelites. God saved anybody who would trust in him. By the time we get to Numbers, we find out some of the people who were with him were Egyptians. Never think that God is paying ethnic favorites. He isn't. It's the blood of the Lamb. God brings anybody who trusts in him. Verse 39, they baked unleavened cakes. You see, they remembered. For it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait. Nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves, nor would they. Day after day, God will provide manna and quail. And then water from the rock. God will save them from the beginning to the end. And that's how he always does it. It's always him from beginning to end. Verse 40. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord. To bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel through generations. The Lord is great and the Lord is good. When they get to the other side, they finally take the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They finally have the Passover. When they have that, they share. They share not on race, but on grace. They share with a mixed multitude. They finally eat. They now take and eat and ingest the lamb, personalizing their need for all of it. But ultimately, they explain that the taking of this meal is a revelation of God's greatness and his goodness. So now let me just remind you this morning. Brothers and sisters, who is the Lord? The Lord is infinitely great. Because the Lord is infinitely great, I have good news for you. You don't need to be in control. You don't need to be afraid. The Lord is great. And the Lord does the impossible. But let me also remind you, the Lord is infinitely good. When you're suffering, there's a hard things to think through. And there are some answers we don't know the answer to. But you know what? One thing we do know for sure. 
Even in that, the Lord loves you. And there's no question that what he's doing is unloving. The Lord is good. But the Lord is good. And do you know what else that means? You don't need and you cannot actually prove yourself worthy. You just trust in God's provision that makes you worthy. See, the blood of the lamb is where God's greatness and God's goodness meet. God's severe judgment on sin and God's mercy on those who trust. And if you have the blood of the lamb, you know that God's greatness and God's goodness are now for you. So put your hope where it belongs in the blood of the lamb and perhaps remember what you know, (laughs) but may have forgotten. Let's pray together this morning. God, I thank you that the answer to the question, who is the Lord, is the Lord is infinitely great and the Lord is infinitely good. Lord, when Pharaoh asked that question, we know that his posture was one of rebellion. He says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? This morning, Lord, tenderize our own hearts so that we are quick to hear and heed the word of the Lord. Help us not to try to be in control when the fact is that you are great and nothing is impossible for you. Help us not to be afraid when you are great and nothing is too difficult for you. Surely we must remember that the Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if he can get two million people out of Egypt and pass them through dry ground, surely he is capable with the strongest of all hands to accomplish what is good in our life. Help us not to be afraid nor to desire control because the Lord is great. But help us also, Lord, to remember that you are good. So that when we notice that you're great and powerful, we don't forget that that power always works for a good end. And that even when we're in difficulty, as they were in slavery, we can never question whether or not you actually love us because we know that even in the slavery, the purpose is to forge a nation. Still, we know now that the purpose of trials is to work perseverance and character and hope and to prepare us for the good things that you have for us in your son, Jesus. But Lord, I pray finally, Lord, that we'd be ready for the deliverance because there will be a day that we are called out of this world and it is too late to ask for a blessing then. So anyone here this morning, perhaps even their neighbors, their sons, their loved ones, need to be put at a moment of decision. We must personally believe, remember, and trust in the blood of the Lamb. So Lord, if anyone needs to move to their trust to Christ alone, move that in their heart, or frankly, move them to have that kind of a conversation with someone in their life, because today is the day of salvation. It is an urgent decision. Prepare us to make it. In Christ we pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.